kind of difficult to keep my balance but you know and and it looks like a lot of work mm-hmm. right so uh, i mean you worked with two other people that's, that's right. uh, partner mitter and rakhi balram so that's right. how do you guys divide the labor i mean I, let's talk about how the i you know and you guys were so brave to take on this mammoth task basically that's what i was watching let's start with that So actually it really started the germ of the idea can be traced back to 2008 when professor Parthamitter was invited yeah. to Delhi to give a talk at the IIC and uh-huh. uh, after his talk we all uh, you know were invited to dinner and um, in the conversation it just uh, came up this question that how come you know china has uh, a history of 20th century chinese art and how come india does not have something which is like comparable and we mm. were really struck by that uh, lack and absence and that's when partha mitter and myself we said yes why don't we take this up as a challenge uh, mm. and it was really after two years that we realized the scope was enormous and yes. when we came to know rakhi balram who was visiting faculty from the us she was teaching at jnu and mm. so we invited to be the third editor and that's okay. how our entire team got formed okay so i mean when i read the introduction you've like divided in, into three uh, three parts three that's sections right. yes so uh, um and 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 you've spoken about the reason why that was done so would you want to talk about that certainly so we uh, actually realized that to write a history of 20th century indian art we really have to offer the long 20th century which means that yeah. we have to also bring in the last decade of of mm-hmm. 19th century as a context yes. to talk yes. about how all these new trends unfold by the beginning of 20th century and mm-hmm. the end point is really the contemporary so we kind of end by say uh, you know 2016 17 Uh, mm. because that's the only way we thought that we could bring about uh, a kind of a contextualization of the contemporary by creating mm. the link between the national modern and the contemporary okay okay so do you want to explain the 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 divisions yeah you know? certainly so uh, the first part really starts from um 1890s that's when you know ravi verma is very much part of the scene and yes. it goes on till the independence 1947 and this first section is edited by professor parthamitter as you know he's uh, absolute an authority on early modernism mm-hmm. and yeah. he is also the author of uh, you know much malign monsters which was one of the yeah. uh, absolutely pioneering uh, you know books which came out in 78 so he really had a very firm grasp on how to critically look at the history of modernism um, mm-hmm. and also contest the eurocentricism or the formulation of uh, modernization so that's mm-hmm. where the first section start, uh, begins that is from 
1890s and ends around 1947. Part two, that's where I step in and I bring in the history of uh, modern art starting from uh, post-independence. So really the post-colonial decades. Uh, mm-hmm. So I start from 47 and I go on till the 1990s uh, and that's when my section ends, uh, followed by the third section, which is edited by Raki Balram, who starts from the 1990s, because that is the period of kind of liberalization, globalization, when major shifts are happening in the yes. field of contemporary art. So she moves on from 1990s and goes on till nearly 2016, 2017. So it almost, as I said, it's really about the long 20th century. Okay. Mentioned in in the introduction about how um, you know uh, the history of colonialism with positions um, cultural borrowing as a sign of inferiority. You know, taking that as a starting point. Right. And as we were, uh, you know began to work on the project, we realized that in a country like India, there cannot be a single story of modernism. Yes. And so we kept resisting. Right. The logic of linear narration of history, mm. because, you know, there are too many different uncharted territories, uh, you know, new geographies of art, which started emerging. So yes. it really started with a very straightforward decade by decade narrative of 20th century Indian art. But yes. as we engage with the current historiography, we realized that there were so many gaps and lacuna which needed to be mm. filled in. And mm. as we began to address those gaps, we realized that the very logic of the narrative of how do we understand modernism? Uh, is it yes. something which is just, you know, derivative of what comes from the West or does it have its own trajectory? So mm. uh, some more these ideas came up. We realized that we are really uh, talking from within a post-colonial space of critiquing the master narrative, which is really coming from elsewhere. So mm. our entire effort was to really uh, contextualize it within the history of India and, you know, its own dynamics of arriving at um, or resolving the, the tension between tradition and modernity and also taking it further. Okay. So, uh, so then, you know, what about this, uh, the process of cultural transmissions between, between the West and the rest of the world has always been reciprocal. Uh-huh. And, and that is something the West is, I think, only now coming to uh-huh. grips with. Yes, certainly. Yeah, certainly. So, in that sense, uh, it's it is an issue which I really uh, try to grapple with in my section, uh, mm-hmm. and I also use this uh, framework of decolonization, which I find very yes. useful, and it has really become a buzzword in art history, especially in global mm-hmm. art history, uh, yes. because uh, you see, I had spent a lot of time being critical of Eurocentricism, and I realized that how long can you go on? occupying the space of post-colonial critique because one has to move beyond it because ultimately yes. we have to take the responsibility of writing histories from what I understand as the global south, you know, and that's yes. when a real dialogue can happen on equal terms. So I think mm. that is the space within which I place 20th century Indian art. Okay. And and, and that's the space uh, from which this book itself emerges, right? As a, yeah. like a positioning against that sort of worldview. Absolutely, absolutely. And we also have to be uh, careful about, um, you know, to what extent can you go on celebrating the national modern? Because we also found that when we are writing the history of 20th century 
Indian art in the 21st century, we cannot remain hemmed in by the nationalist frame, which we found very limiting. And therefore, although we just talked about the three parts, the book also has the fourth part, where we extend our gaze to include, um, you know, modern and contemporary art in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, in Sri Lanka, in Nepal, and even Myanmar. Because I thought that's when, you know, the whole idea of the broader region of South Asia kind of zooms to the foreground. Okay. So I was, you know, I was a bit surprised by the Myanmar inclusion, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and why, why not? I mean, of course, Afghanistan also, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. why not? Right. <laughs> yes, that's a very good question. Um, yeah. Also, partly the exigencies of finding the, the right experts, uh, mm. because remember, it is an edited volume. And yes. it is the responsibility of the editors to identify uh, the specialist who can really do full justice to the topic. And mm. so partly we've also dictated by availability of experts whose narratives we find, you know, reliable and mm. credible. So mm. I think we're hemmed in by those, uh, those uh, you know, questions. Okay. So uh, um, you've got a lot of experts to write uh, for the book as well, which is what adds, like, I think at some point in the introduction, uh, you mentioned about multi-vocalism. So, you know, talk about that and why you got in these experts. I mean, I know why, but, you know, from your perspective as an editor. Yeah, certainly. So, in fact, there are 46 chapters and there are that many contributors out of which 19 are India-based and 27 are from abroad. Uh, So the idea was um, to find uh, the most, as I said, reliable voices who are Mm. uh, absolutely specialists in that particular area. And Mm. therefore, we have spent a lot of time thinking about uh, who is going to absolutely fit in to this particular uh, place as a chapter writer. So Mm. that has been one of the uh, questions that we've been involved in. And yes, there are, as you know, there are three or four parts and three editors, which was also a challenge in a sense, because we three editors, we were operating from three different continents, you know, Partha mm-hmm. Mitter from Oxford, uh, yeah. Raki Balram from the US, and myself from Delhi, and mm-hmm. three different time zones, so which oh. also posed a very <laughs> many kind of challenges for us. But yes. at the same time, I think it gave us a very broad you know, framework within which to uh, locate this history of 20th century Indian art. We did not want to be hemmed in, again, by the frame of cultural nationalism. Okay. Okay. Um, Right. So then, you know, um, I found this bit also very interesting. The art of the 20th and 21st centuries unfolds across multiple registers. What makes this moment complex is the coincidence um, of the arrival of the technological with the surfacing of social and political crises in the public domain. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so this gives rise to a form of cultural um, politics that adds new complexities. You know? That's right. So it's really uh, the third section, which yes. is what immediately comes to my mind, because 1990s was the time of the arrival of technology. In a yes. big sense, because, you know, that was a time of Internet technology. Uh, that is a time of, as I said, economic liberalization. So yes. it really had a deep impact on the entire art scene in the country. Uh, mm. So much so that you had new players in the field which came up. Lots and lots of private art galleries suddenly yes. began to mushroom 
in you know mm-hmm. these art capitals, especially in mm-hmm. Bombay and Delhi, and also in yes. Calcutta. And so these uh, sort of private players they brought in their own dynamics. And what is very interesting is uh, each of these private galleries were also very much uh, interested in building a research component. And they uh-huh. all had their own researchers who were trying to, you know, look at the archives, create their own archive collection and so on. Uh, but they were all, in a sense, in disparate kind of, a, you know, a, a sort of sense in which they were being, uh, you know, happening in different parts. Whereas what we thought is we cannot look at this third section, which starts from 90s, without actually bringing in all these different regional centers. And also uh, look at the way in which they speak to each other. Hmm. Oh, so that that's that's I mean that's a project in itself, actually, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and also, if you bring in the technologies, it also tells you about the new kind of genres of contemporary art, which were yeah. emerging. For example, installation art, use of photography, uh, performance yeah. art, multimedia. So the yeah. very definition of how the audience engages with contemporary art began to change because, you know, the entire effort was also to draw in the spectator in a kind of an immersive space, uh, which yes. gave rise to totally different uh, participation from the audience. Hmm. And, and also, what about the, you know, the emergence of regional sort of uh, uh, art movements, you know? Right, right. So... Uh, this is where you've really touched upon the lacuna that we were trying very hard to fill in. Uh, one mm-hmm. was the status of the regional modern, and most mm-hmm. of the mainstream art, art historical historiographies have really not attended to what was happening in regions which were seen kind of far flung, uh, mm-hmm. slightly you know separate from the metropolitan centers. For example, what is happening in say Andhra Pradesh, right, yes. or what is happening yes. in the northeast. Uh, yes. These regions were completely kind of overlooked, and we really wanted to bring it in, not only through the region, but also through certain issues of politics of representation. For example, the chapter on Andhra Pradesh also looks at the region critically through the lens of gender. So, what is happening to women artists who are mm-hmm. doubly marginalized in yes. a region like the Andhra Pradesh? So mm-hmm. I think we have invited, uh, you know, a specialist of the field, Rohini Iyengar, to, mm-hmm. you know, plug those gaps. Okay. And for the Northeast, uh, this young researcher, Amrita Gupta Singh, had been invited uh, to, uh, you know, work on the Northeast. And she's really, I think, done a phenomenal job. She's done a lot of archival work. She's traveled a lot, collected so much of information and put it together in a very coherent chapter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, whenever I talk to people, the one thing that keeps, um, you know, across fields, you know, authors, um, they talk about the the state of our archiving and, yes. and the difficulty with, uh, yes. you know, they have in grappling with that. So, you know, in such a massive book like this, what were the challenges that you faced in, in this research? Sure, sure, sure. So, uh, you know, as I just mentioned earlier, in response to your earlier question about these private art galleries becoming important mm-hmm. players and they also started taking a lot of interest in 
archiving process and they would all have research components and so on, which I think is hugely commendable. But at the same time, you know, uh, the political economy and its dynamics being such that there would be tendency amongst these uh, art galleries to really focus on artists that they promote, you know, yes. uh, whereas this is something that we had to be very cautious of because we had to keep a kind of a neutral distance from uh, such, uh, you know, <laughs> political economy, because without which we will not be able to, you know, uh, give you the history of 20th century Indian art with any kind of uh, veracity. And yes. although I must also admit that uh, this book would not have come into existence without the support that we received from a private art gallery like Art Alive, um, mm. but what is what is a huge relief, something which we all editors felt is that we could write freely without any pressure from the mm. art gallery to really toe the line and to really focus on artists that they are interested in exhibiting in their mm. art galleries. So I think that mm. needs to be really, uh, you know, uh, told. Hmm. And why, while you were putting this together, I'm sure you were approached also, quoted by many ga galleries, I'm sure. So uh, was that to be very frank, to be very frank, um, yeah. you know, people actually did not realize the ex extent and ambition of the project. And perhaps they thought that, no. okay, it's perhaps, you know, it's being patronized by an art gallery, uh, it would, you know, have its own kind of modest scale and so on. It was only recently now that the book has kind of, you know, attracted attention and people have started engaging with it, that they realized the enormous scope that we have been able to address. Um, no, surprisingly, we were not uh, really, uh, you know, approached by other art galleries because this project has been unprecedented. Uh, mm. Actually, and we also had been very we had signed a contract with the publisher, Thames and Hudson. We could not divulge any any chapters to anybody. So we had to be very cautious about that as well. Oh, oh so they, so people just didn't realize. Exactly, the, 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 exactly. Oh, <laughs> okay. That's a good thing. <laughs> you know, and I also found very interesting the you know, the sections on Dalit, uh, mm -hmm. right, uh, the Dalit artists and, you know, right. uh, tribal um, right. artists who've earlier, I mean, earlier, uh, you know, there's this tendency, maybe not Dalit um, artists, because there was a tendency not to look at that at all as a separate yeah. category, but yes. tribal yes. artists as, you know, just artisans and not as yes. part of uh, yes. the national sort yes. of That's right. artist thing. So talk about that. Yeah, so we were very keen that... Um, these other two issues also got equal attention. That is uh, the question of Dalit artist. Uh, at the same time, you know, what is the status of uh, tribal artists, you know, who mm. have been kind of marginalized. There's a long history of marginalization in the country. Yes. Uh, yes. But at the same time, we didn't want them just to be restricted to uh, a chapter or two. And yes. this is a question which came up when uh, we were looking at contemporary Indian art. And we realized mm. that um, there was very interesting exchange which was happening between contemporary artists and the uh, you know artisans who well uh, it's problematic to use the term collaboration because you know collaboration and partnership implies equal terms but very often yeah. there there were a lot of inequality uh, yeah. in the transaction between uh, say a tribal artist or, or an artisan who has been commissioned by a yeah. metropolitan artist so then yeah. we realized that we are actually looking at it the inequality as a way of coming to terms with contemporary art. So it does not just remain 
uh, you know, mm-hmm. restricted to just that one chapter on Dalit art. Uh, mm-hmm. But it informs the way in which we have conceptualized contemporary art itself and its, you know, uneven dynamics. Okay. Like while I was looking at the book, uh, you know, I was also wondering about the emerging, I mean, now it's like, you know, the political scene right now with with right wing, um, you know, Mm -hmm. growing in prominence and what the effect of that has on art. I mean, of course, we know that, you know, MF Hussein Mm -hmm. was uh, hounded out, but... Uh, you know, what about at, now in the academy and, uh, you know, as art is being taught and, uh, and what, what do you think would be the uh, emergence of things influenced by that? Yeah, in fact, yesterday I attended a, a meeting on the NEP, the National Education Policy. And, you know, there, has, there seems to be a lot of thrust on, uh, you know, going back to uh, Indian identity and so on. And I think... Uh, we are resisting that essentialized way of, you know, looking at Indian identity because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one has to have a very uh, complex relationship with the past. Not everything mm-hmm. about the past is uh, up for celebration. There are things which we have to be critical of, you know, yes. and only then we can we look at ourselves as, you know, modern and, and contemporary, uh, you mm-hmm. know, subjects and not, uh, you know, people who are completely held enthrall of something which happened you know thousands of years ago so uh, that's one of the ways in which we have looked at uh, contemporary art and modern arts engagement with the past it cannot just be you know blind celebration of the Indian identity and that is how we have to move beyond uh, the modernist who were to a certain extent stuck in this dynamics you know how do you understand um, the, 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 the dialogue between tradition and modernity and how to bring that on a much broader and critical scale has been the attempt of our book. Mm-hmm. And there's a very moving chapter by Geeta Kapoor on um, Emma Fusen, uh, mm-hmm. and where she, uh, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful lament, a tragic lament on uh, what were the con- conditions and circumstances under which, uh, you know, Emma Fusen had to leave the country. And mm-hmm. with that, begins her own critical lament on the very category that she had uh, evolved, which is that on the national modern. And in fact, it's from that point onwards, 1990s, that one realizes that that earlier paradigm is not going to help us to capture what is happening in the art world of post-1990s. Yes, yes. Do you think it's far more complicated? It grew more complicated as we became more globalized or what? I mean, you know, that. Absolutely, because globalization on one hand, of course, brought in uh, some kind of a celebration of technology and so on, you know, you know, uh, 24-hour news, satellite uh, channels and so on. So on one hand, it brought the world closer, right? Mm-hmm. The distance between different nations, you know, shrank and so on. But at the same time, it brought in so many different conflicts. Uh, and mm-hmm. we are actually even today witnessing the, the, the long-term impact of those conflicts, which really can be, you know, traced back to the 1990s. Yes, yes. Okay, okay so I also noticed, you know, you've included the diaspora within the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's one thing I noticed right when I saw the Anish Kapoor thing, but then mm-hmm. um, within the introduction, you've, you've explained it. So would you like to, like, you know, go over that? Why, why the diaspora? And, and you, uh, you, the introduction also says that, you know, there's a sort of 
um, coming together. There's mm-hmm. of the diaspora artists and artists from India. Sometimes you can't really tell. Right, right. So I would be really speaking on the behalf of my third editor, Raki Balram. It is really from her section. And uh, she is herself, I would say, uh, you know, uh, somebody who was trained in the West. Uh, Mm -hmm. She um, right now teaches in the US. So she is the person who was very well placed to write this chapter on on the diaspora, not only Mm -hmm. in terms of the the UK diaspora, but also the US diaspora. And I know it's it's a huge, huge area to really look into in a chapter. But I think she's done commendable work uh, in bringing all these questions to the foreground in terms of how does uh, the very notion of national identity mean for an artist of Indian diaspora origin, uh, you know, Mm. working from, uh, you know, across the distance in in somewhere in the West or in Europe and so on. And uh, I think she really is able to address some of the challenges that these artists are working within. And I think uh, that's one of the most, uh, you know, compelling chapters in the whole book, because nothing Mm. of this sort has been written before. So I'm very proud to have that chapter in the book. Okay. Uh, Okay, now there's this bit about, you know, much like global society, you know, that bit. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So when we talk about plural society, it really... uh, you know, takes us to the question of gender. It takes us to the question of caste, uh, class, uh, of course, religion. So all these uh, things which really come together, which is best understood through the rubric of intersectionality, right? Yes, so that yes. is one of the ways in which we are grappling with uh, the unevenness, which completely, uh, I think, characterizes uh, uh, more, uh, I think, the, the way in which contemporary art has evolved than even modern because modern had some kind of a you know broad umbrella within which uh, you know all indian artists you know you're all you belong to the same uh, you know nation as long as you are indian by definition does not matter what your class is what your caste is uh, and and so on right so all these yeah. today when we look back to those moments we understand them as uh, these are blinkers you know people yes. they don't really address some of yes. these absolute, you know, important salient issues, which are now, you know, uh, completely coming out and demanding our attention. And so that is why the challenge that the contemporary artists are facing are far more, uh, you know, uh, far more um, interesting. And and how do I say, Uh, they are very, very polemical. And I think what they have done in addressing them is quite phenomenal. Hmm. I think at that point, it was almost like, you know, brushing it under the carpet or exactly. not even realizing, I don't know. Exactly, you know? exactly. <laughs> Which I suppose we can't afford to do now because it's all out there. That's right. And you'll be happy to know that there's one entire chapter on art writing by Sonal Kuller, mm-hmm. who does mm-hmm. this interesting mapping of what, the kind of art writing which happened earlier, you know, yes. uh, early um, sort of, you know, early independence period uh, and what happens later on. And precisely, it is around the politics of representation that you find that very different styles of writing emerge. Modernist, uh, you know, for example, um, uh, even uh, somebody like, um, you know, Bartholomew, uh, who would really write with a certain sense of clarity, which is actually very admirable. And mm. they had very clearly laid out yardstick through which Richard Bartholomew could actually pronounce certain artists as their works being more interesting 
that you know krishna khanna in this exhibition has got it right uh, but mm. he had the audacity to say well next time perhaps it was not good enough <laughs> this is something which we are really missing in the art mm. writing today because uh, an art curator who really emerges from 1990s is a different figure altogether from an art critic so yeah. art curator would uh, would completely abandon the idea of uh, passing judgment aesthetic judgment Uh, mm. but is more interested in uh, describing the work in telling us what are the conditions under which this artwork has been produced so yes, you see one yes. has really moved uh, from very different styles of art writing hmm but also in the contemporary world you know passing judgment itself mm. would be considered uh, not a good thing yeah know? it's it's politically incorrect absolutely <laughs> yeah so the critic himself would come or herself would come under Uh, attack for whatever background intellectual right. uh, you know That's so right. it's difficult i guess mm-hmm. so okay so you all this interesting you know, uh, you know the introduction says about ngoization of uh, yeah, yeah let's yeah, talk yeah. about that yeah, yeah. so uh, what i really mean by that is you know until i would say 1990s you know we keep mm-hmm. coming back to this cutting off moment uh, yeah. the modernist notion of celebrating an artist originality you know the whole idea of artist as an author a unique individual who could offer unique vision through artwork that was highly celebrated but mm-hmm. i think once uh, uh, i think post 1990s you have a very different notion of uh, artistic agency where mm-hmm. art- artists began to feel uncomfortable even assigning their works it was almost as if oh that's too much of a blatant you know imposition of their own authority mm. whereas they felt that they had to now insert themselves within the larger community and also work for the community and so mm. you know nav namtoj uh, what am i saying um, uh, navjot altaf has been yeah. seminal in this regard because at that more i think 1990s is the time when she really uh, embarks on this um, very unusual journey so here is an bombay based metropolitan artist who decides mm. to uh, travel to madhya pradesh and work in a village tribal village of bastar and yes. she tries to have a dialogue with the tribal mm. artists and she brings mm. them uh, to the board and they uh, they learn from each other and create what is called a some a certain kind of community art practice that is not mm. only do you work with other artists or artisans from a very mm. different economic and social background but you work with the interest of the community in mind so you really mm. also find out from the from the the, the the audience the villagers or so on in terms of what do they think about the art you know how mm. how does art make a difference to their lives and mm. it is through that dialogue uh you know with the subaltern or you know the, those who were considered marginalized that the artist mm-hmm. begins to question her own practice and evolves new ways of relating with the community so this is what mm-hmm. i think one can refer to as the enjoyization of of the <laughs> art world <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay okay so which also makes me think about you know the section on street art mm-hmm. which is different that's also engaging with the community but it has a completely different sense to it so which i think i mean i read that which um, explains it well about you know also government um, sponsorship right. of it and support so right. talk about that because uh, I, since we are in delhi even right this. right so i think sanjuta kurana she is the yes. one who writes this uh, very interesting text box uh, where she brings in uh, street art and 
you know, uh, on one hand, it seems as if uh, street artists are doing something which is absolutely, um, you know, radical, politically radical. Yes. But moment you go into the, uh, you know, the politics of sponsorship, then you realize that, oh, gosh, it's really feeding into the neoliberal mm-hmm. economy. And yes. uh, it's artists, uh, their talent, uh, talent, they are actually used by the government agency to beautify cities, you know. Yes. And so yes. this is something which, uh, on one hand, of course, one uh, cannot help to a certain extent appreciating transformations which are happening in the urban landscape. At the same time, one can't just go on blindly celebrating it. Uh, and mm-hmm. one has to actually develop a more critical lens to look at these developments. Absolutely. Mm. Actually, that's a very good, uh, that, that's a very good um, piece because I didn't look at it like this, like, like anybody else. I was just looking at it thinking, oh, wow, lovely, lovely. But I think about all the permissions and, you know, and who gives them. And, right, exactly. Yeah. So, exactly. So, uh, you know, what has been the most difficult thing about getting this book together? Uh, the challenges? Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, one challenge has been the very fact that, uh, you know, we three different editors who have very different styles of thinking and writing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this was a worry which was uh, occupying our minds. But Mm -hmm. we also realized that why don't we turn that into something which is positive? We thought that let us all, all the three editors, keep our voices, make Mm -hmm. our narrative much more plural and um, so that idea is to avoid that one authoritative voice, which is going to tell you the history of 20th century Indian art. And also all the three editors, they were in charge of the three different sections. Uh, so these sections allowed us to retain our own understanding of what we think of contemporary modern art. So I think mm-hmm. in that sense, it has worked to our advantage, um, you know, keeping the plurality of our uh, voices, our understanding of modernism, uh, you know, kind of um, there, I mean, without one conflicting with the other. Mm-hmm. You know, and I found this bit interesting. This zigzagging is meant to destabilize a chronological narrative and grant the reader some agency in navigating these histories. Because uh, otherwise, uh, how would we do it? How would the reader do it? I mean, you can't read such a huge book. So, so talk about that and how you arrived at this idea. Yeah. So thanks for raising this because uh, this is it also helps me to underline that there is no single uh, story of modernism. Um, mm-hmm. And for example, you know, in um, the first section itself, uh, you have a couple of essays. Uh, there is um, one by Saloni uh, Mathur on mm. Amrita Shergill, which really falls yes. in Partha Mitra's section. And yes. so although she's telling us about Amrita Shergill, but she also draws interesting connection with the way in which her works have been relooked by uh, mm. you know, contemporary artists like Vivan Sundram. So yes. there's, there's, a constant, there's a constant forward and backward motion. Um, mm. And at the same time, the famous uh, you know, 2013 exhibition of Bauhaus uh, which yes. uh, celebrated uh, when, uh, you know, the first time Bahos artworks arrived from Germany uh, mm-hmm. and they were shown in Calcutta in 20, 1922, uh, which according to Parthamitar is the inaugural moment of modernism in India. Uh, mm-hmm. So that happens in 1913. 
so the chapter really moves between the 1913 moment at the same time 2013 moment when one is oh. looking back and trying to understand oh this is how modernism you know uh, had an interesting conversation in india and so on so there is constant backward and forward movement uh, which mm. is has been one of the strategies uh, through which we have been avoiding that one you know monotonous singular narrative of modern and contemporary art hmm Hmm. Okay, so I was looking at even uh, this uh, the Raja Ravi Verma section mm -hmm. and thinking, you know, um, like when uh, when you know critics or theoreticians say uh, talk about the place of Indian art in creating um, identities, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then one looks at the continuing popularity of uh, Ravi Verma mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you know and how. Over the last hundred years, though the uh, the academy might not, you know, um, uh, might not, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, respect him as much or didn't right. at some point. Right, right. Popular, right. Uh, he's very popular. He continues to be popular. Over the last right. hundred years, he's been popular. Yes, you know? yes. Talk yes. about that. Yes. So, uh, you know, he has been popular at the same time controversial uh, yes. because uh, at the beginning of the Indian modern, I mean, we can trace it to the time when the Bengal school, uh, you know, emerged. Uh, mm. It was headed headed by Abhinandan Tagore. Uh, so yes. that was the time when uh, I think there was a lot of hostility shown to uh, Ravi Varma because his work suddenly looked very Western. Why? Because uh, at that time of, you know, early cultural nationalism, um, mm. it was not enough for Indian artists to paint on Indian themes drawn from the epics, you know, Ramayana, Mahabharata and so on. But mm. what is the style of narration that you choose? And the fact yeah. that Ravi Varma had chosen oil painting, mm. which had its own kind of, you know, photographic realism, began yes. to be frowned upon by these early, uh, you know, I would say cultural nationalists uh, mm. who felt that to make Indian art authentically Indian, one had to be very aware of the language that one is adopting in telling narratives. And that is when they began to look mm. elsewhere, away from the West, of course, you know, to, because oil painting was seen as uh, too mm. reminiscent of European art uh, and, and the way in which they celebrated naturalism. Uh, on the other hand, it was it was felt that it's it's much better that we turn to other uh, you know other places for inspiration and it was really mm. the art of china and japan which inspired mm. uh, uh, some of these uh, you know paintings by uh, the bengal school artists and they in fact uh, embraced the wash technique you know which yes. is a very different uh, style of representation where you mm. actually very uh, you know gently you build layers and layers and it gi gives you a very ethereal almost otherworldly feel and that is what mm. began to be celebrated uh, and which was very different from Ravi Verma's realism. So as opposed to Ravi Verma's realism, there was this new trend towards uh, transcendentalism, you know, which was yes. which had a very unique aesthetics, which was celebrated at that moment. And mm. then, of course, later on, you find uh, Ravi Verma was again kind of, you know, picked up uh, a lot of contemporary artists. They have, uh, you know, a new adaptation for Ravi Verma because, you know, his Realism was seen as not something which was straight away, you know, plucked from the West and put on Indian themes, but he had evolved a new naturalism, which was very Indian. You know, the way he gives attention to yes. the ornaments and the sari borders and yes. so on. 
So that's exactly what uh, I think what you were saying, that Ravi Varma has gone through these ups and downs, either admiration or uh, kind of, you know, negation of his practice. Yes. Yes. And another figure of, you know, another, I mean, I haven't read the whole thing, but this uh, Nicholas Rorick's uh, yeah. bit, that's also, you know, these, these are, I mean, at the, the, during their lifetimes, they were huge, but um, I don't know, contemporary Indians seem to have forgotten, you know, so. That's right. So we actually, uh, you know, uh, I think we have a lot of attention to uh, Nicholas Rorick, uh, both father and son. And I think they have uh, been yes. very, very salient to the history of early modernism. Um, and mm. I think it's written by um, a Russian art historian, young Russian art historian, uh, who oh, uh, yes. you know came up with this idea. And we're only very happy to invite him to contribute. Mm. Mm. And also, even that Japanese—I mean, I didn't know about this Japanese um, artist. Also, uh, there's a there's a box on him. Who's um, uh, uh, you know who's in Calcutta and was influenced? He was influenced by Indian artists as well. You know, so yeah, yeah, really... absolutely. So he I... was, yeah, he he was actually uh, uh, spearing head, spearing um, or rather heading the uh, the pan Asian ideology, yeah. something which yes, really yes. appealed to uh, appeal to um, the uh, you know the Bengal school artists like Abhinav Tagore. And uh, uh, yes. so this was the moment when there was a move towards pan-Asian aesthetics. And I think Japanese artists mm -hmm. had a very important role to play because they were also very critical of Europeanization and Westernization of art and culture. And so that was the yes. moment when uh, there was a sense of cultural solidarity, uh, which was, mm -hmm. you know, being created between mm -hmm. Indian and Japanese artists. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the, this whole section of Indian photography in the colonial era as well. I mean, I'm wondering how photographers uh, are looking at this because they have their own, you know, I mean, they have been archiving in this huge way, right? You know, so uh, what was the what was the conversation then, you know? Editors yeah. of this one. Yeah, so we we really told ourselves that uh, we have to uh, be fair to photography as a genre, which again has been uh, kind of overlooked in the history of you know uh, modern art. And so we, in all the three sections, we have a special place reserved for photography. Uh, mm -hmm. I think the first section, Parthamitar himself writes about uh, colonial yes. photography. And yes. I think in my section, Rahab Alana does an uh, admirable job of talking mm -hmm. about how, uh, what happens to photography uh, post-1947 and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how the entire vision changes. And um, I think even the woman photographer, woman photographer who has been highly celebrated uh, has been written about. Um, and um, then in the third section, of course, third section is replete with reference to photography. Uh, and my colleague Shukla Savant talks about how there were these interesting conversations between contemporary artists and photography and how they use mm. uh, photography as a new genre to be able to accommodate uh, contemporary notions uh, about uh, yes. you know, art, aesthetics and so on. Hmm. And in even the section with uh, Ram Kinkar Bej and sculpture, I mean, I could keep on asking you things because it's <laughs> such a huge book, you know, and it's so interesting to like, I guess, you know, the editors wanted the reader to dip in and out, right? Because that's the only way you can right. Uh, right, right. engage with this book. 
So that's right. And Manjula, you must have noticed that as you yeah. were, uh, you know, leafing through the book, um, yeah. of course, uh, you know, there is this verbal narrative which tells you about the history of uh, modern and contemporary Indian art. But if you just focused on the images, you know, images yeah. will also tell their own narratives. And so that yes. is something which we really wanted to preserve. Uh, that, you know, there should be these two parallel narratives, the visual and the verbal working together. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, um, uh, you know, for I mean, I could keep on talking to you, but uh, we've got to end. So for the, for the listener, go out, you know, uh, it, it's a huge tome, but um, try and get your hands on it, on 20th century Indian art. Um, edited by Parthu Mitter, Parul Dave Mukherjee and Rakhi Balram. It is something, I mean, it's it's a book that you need to keep and savor and refer to and generally draw inspiration from, actually. So thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you, Manjula, for your very, very positive comments. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.